It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, April 29th, 2015, and you're listening to the God and Comics Podcast, broadcasting live from the chapel at Stately Wayne Manor. I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I am Rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm Rector of Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the curate at Christ Church Cooperstown in New York. And on today's show, we discuss social consciousness in comics. Over the decades, comic books have repeatedly weighed in on the pressing issues of the day in ways that are sometimes subtle, sometimes not. We'll talk about how comics and comic culture contribute to a better world, and it's just possible that one of us will burn our bra. Of course, we'll also have uh, recommendations, this or that, and a whole lot more. So, uh, with no further ado, uh, let's go ahead and go right into our recommendations. And, um, Father Matt, what do you have for us today? Well, um... I'd like to recommend The Black Panther, The Man Without Fear. Uh, the Black Panther was the first black uh, superhero, it, it, well, at least in a, a mainstream American comic book, and he was introduced by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in The Fantastic Four. Uh, he's the ruler of, 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 a, of a small African nation called Wakanda, and my, my f- first introduction to him was from Marvel Team Up, a, a Spider-Man book, where, where, where uh, it was Marvel Team Up number 20. And he, he teamed up with Spider-Man to fight Stegon, a lesser-known villain. And uh, I was instantly intrigued by the character, um, at least initially because he looks really cool. He, he looks like a, a sort of a mashup of Spider-Man and Batman. Which you know, how could you go wrong with that? But once I learned the the backstory behind the character, I became even more intrigued. So um, this this title, Black Panther: The Man Without Fear, actually puts uh, the Black Panther, or uh, as his, his civilian name is T'Challa, in a new setting. He is in Hell's Kitchen, uh, Daredevil's usual stomping grounds. And uh, Daredevil has taken uh, a hiatus from uh, his role as the defender of that part of New York. And uh, T'Challa, the Black Panther, has stepped into his place. And he's sort of, um, he's learning as he goes. He, he's, uh, he's, he's trying to uh, find himself after his own personal crisis. And it, 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 it's wonderfully written by a novelist, David Liss. Who he he's the author of a number of novels. His Amazon description is, a, is too good to not mention. It says in 2008 at the United Nations Convention Against Corruption in Bali, Indonesia, he was named an artist for integrity by the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. No one is really sure why he should receive this honor or what it means. But it very possibly makes him the Bono of historical fiction. <laughs> because that's so, what historical uh, fiction was lacking up till now, was a Bono. So. Yes, yes, and David Liss has fulfilled that role. 
and so he, he, he writes the comic book. The comic book's uh, very well written. And um, the artwork is fantastic, too. Um, the artist is Francisco Francavella, who, who uh, we mentioned already on this podcast is the author of the Afterlife with Archie comics. And uh, he's quickly becoming one of my favorite comic book artists. His style just really does it for me. And so the, the Black Panther, it, it continues on, um, and eventually it was called The Black Panther, uh, The Most Dangerous Man Alive. And uh, unfortunately, it, it, it's not uh, been continued by Marvel. I think it was canceled a year or so ago. But um, the back issues and, and the trade paperbacks can still be found on, on Amazon or at your local comic store. Father Kyle, what do you got? My recommendation today is the Ultimate Spider-Man comic, um, which was begun in about the year 2000 and uh, still going today, although it's under a different title now, which is Miles Morales, The Ultimate Spider-Man. This was Marvel's attempt to sort of reboot Spider-Man under the Ultimate moniker. They had created another universe uh, known as the Ultimate Universe in the 2000s, and um, this was an attempt to take the Spider-Man character and put him in a more current setting and amend some of the, the um, features of his character from what they had been in the regular Spider-Man comic line. It was written by, it still is written by um, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, who I think is one of the greatest comic writers today. Has been drawn by a number of artists. Mark Bagley, who's one of my favorite Spider-Man artists ever, had uh, the longest run on the title. He he went, I forget how many issues, over a hundred and some issues um, in the Ultimate line, and then it gave way to Stuart Immonen and David LaFuente, and then Sarah Pacelli, and it's currently being drawn by David Marquez, who I think is also a fantastic artist. The story is very similar to the standard Spider-Man story, except, um, as I said before, he's given some some of a modern-day setting and some of the angst of a modern-day teenager. The style of the writing on the Ultimate Spider-Man comic is um, short movies is about the best way I could characterize it. Each storyline is broken down into uh, six issues, there are um, some issues in which the character of Spider-Man himself doesn't really make an appearance, although Peter Parker does, and you deal with various aspects of Peter Parker's life as it intertwines with Aunt May and Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy. We see a lot of the classic character, classic Spider-Man villains making an appearance, um, although slightly retooled so that the Green Goblin, who is the very first villain that Spider-Man encar- uh, encounters in this line, is actually a goblin. He's Norman Osborn, who has injected himself with mm. a chemical known as Oz, an attempt to make a super soldier to be the next Captain America, and he turns it into a goblin as a result of this. Um, we also see Venom and Carnage and Dr. Octopus, and there's even a Sinister Six storyline known as the Ultimate Six. Eventually, Peter Parker ends up um, dying, in a classic Death of Spider-Man storyline, and Miles Morales, who is a Hispanic African-American youth, um, takes up the mantle, having been bitten by a spider from the same line that Peter Parker was bitten by, and he becomes the new Ultimate Spider-Man. 
he, he's really taken off as a character, and I find him to be a very, very intriguing character. Um, there's some talk about once the Secret War storyline is done, um, that Marvel's going to be running in about a month or so, that he may remain the only Spider-Man, and they may do away with um, with the Peter Parker character, who we've all come to know and love. Yeah, there's um, there's also been some chatter, I don't know if you've heard this, um, that now that Spider-Man is going to be um, coming back to the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, because, you know, Sony's had the rights. So the last right. couple of Spider-Man movies have been done by Sony and have not been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But now that Spider-Man's going to somehow, through some special deal, be able to come back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's some talk that it's going to be Miles Morales. Oh, wow. That would be interesting. It's about the only well, way well, it could be, really, since we've just seen like two different reboots in the last fifteen years. Of, <laughs> yeah. I think they need to do well, something different. From what from what I've heard, that they they've confirmed that it it is in fact going to be Peter Parker, not Miles Morales. Oh, really? And, oh, okay. yeah. But there there has been some discussion on whether or or not um, a, a non-white actor will play Peter Parker. Okay. Um, okay. But um, but so I I don't know if they've if they've chosen an actor for Peter Parker yet. My recommendation this time out is a book called Alex and Ada. It's put out by Image Comics. It is co-created by Jonathan Luna and Sarah Vaughn. They both have created the story. Uh, Sarah Vaughn does the scripting. Jonathan Luna does the art for it which is really fantastic artwork it is a sci-fi romance story with a lot of really interesting stuff that it brings up so it takes place in a future version of our world that is not so different from our world today it is different in the the aspect of the kind of technology that is available so for instance people are able to call each other with a thought uh, they have these things planted in their heads for that, so they don't have to actually use a cell phone. Everybody's got little robotic things that, you know, clean their houses and, and do stuff like that. The cars kind of hover, you know, all these kind of things. And yet, it's still basically a realistic version of our world in that people are still basically people. They're still getting up and going to work in the morning at offices. They're still eating cornflakes for breakfast, you know. Um, so it's it's not an unrelatable, crazy sci-fi version of the world. Um, it's just a little more advanced than, than our world today. In this version of the future, there are different kinds of robots that uh, people use for various purposes to help them. And there's one kind that's basically an android that looks exactly like a human being, talks like a human being, feels like a human being. You wouldn't know that they weren't human beings except uh, for a marking that they have on their arms. And apparently, at some point in the past, before the comic started, a couple of these androids had developed sentience, and there were riots, and there were people killed. And so some laws were passed about this that... Uh, in the future, these companies had to make sure that the androids and robots they were creating could not become sentient. Uh, and so they have done that. 
and um, now these androids are like the, the the really lifelike ones are like the top of the line, and uh, people get them as companions to hang out in their houses. Um, there's some insinuation they don't show anything terrible in this book, but there's some insinuation that some people are uh, using them for um, shall we say amorous purposes. Um, but judiciously <laughs> put thank you um but they are these are not they're not sentient you know they're not able to make choices for themselves and and you know things like that so the story centers around this this guy whose grandmother has one of these things and uh she thinks he's too lonely and he ought to have one so she sends him one and uh, at first, he's going to send her back because he thinks the whole thing is really weird. But then he just, for some reason, he decides, you know, I, I, I can't just have her shipped back. Um, he names her Ada. And uh, he's trying to figure out, you know, what to do with her. He, he finds it really disturbing that she seems so lifelike and yet doesn't have the ability to make her own choices and think for herself. So there's this virtual reality version of the of the web where people basically have avatars of themselves and it's it's like virtual reality. So instead of going into a chat room or or a message board like we might today, you actually it's almost like you physically walk into it in your mind. Um he finds one off the grid somewhere where there are all of these androids uh, and some human uh, allies, shall we say, all of these androids who have been given sentience. As it turns out, uh, this company is not really able to make these things without sentience. So what they've been doing is putting chips into them that block their ability to have sentience. And so various people have been uh, setting them free uh, the problem is this is highly illegal, and if it, you know, because everybody's afraid of the riots and everything else, and so it could turn out that, you know, another war could be coming or, or something like that. And so he wrestles with this for a while, but finally decides, I can't just leave her like this, especially now that I know that she's got sentience that's just being cut off for her. He has her basically set free. And the story that follows is both a story of how this, you know, how she interacts with society and deals with this problem, which is a social problem, uh, but also a, a development of a love story between the two of them that's actually a genuine love story because now she has, you know, the ability to make these choices. The story itself, as I'm describing it, you may think to yourself, you know, there have been things like this before, and there have. Um, but it's really well done, and I actually think the most interesting thing about it is the interplay between these two characters and how he learns what it means to be a person by watching her basically become a person. And, uh, and the romantic storyline as well that develops between the two of them is a really sweet kind of um, love story that's complicated, but that is, um, that's ultimately really interesting to watch for what it says about them. I'm really enjoying it. It's a limited run series, so they're only going to do 15 issues total, three 
uh, trade paperbacks in the end that'll have five uh, five issues each. The first two are out. I love them both. I have them both. It, it, it's a really compelling story, and uh, I highly recommend it, especially if you're looking for a book that's a little bit different, that's not in the superhero genre, or if you know somebody who might be more interested in a book that has some more philosophical underpinning to it and that also has some romance in it, this would be a good book for you. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it does seem like it has some in common with um, the the work of like Isaac Asimov. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I, I see that as, as, as a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that there is that's a trope, right? The 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 robot who becomes human. I mean, it's basically the sure. Pino- the Pinocchio yeah. uh, trope. Um, it's it's you know Lieutenant Commander Data. It's uh, I mean you know take your pick. But, or, or even um, Philip K. Dick, uh, Blade Runner, or uh, mm-hmm. do, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the novel. <laughs> which, is, which is a great title. Yes. Um, uh, I, I, the, yeah, I love the title. I, I don't know if it would fit on the movie poster, though. No, <laughs> not so much. But like I said, you know, it's, I mean, the story itself that I think I find that trope to be interesting because there's a lot you can do with it. And the story itself is just, I just think something about the characters and the building of these characters makes for a very compelling set of thoughts and ideas and discoveries. And uh, that to me is what makes it fresh, despite the fact that the, the story itself is kind of a trope. Yeah. Mm. So... Well, that'll do it for our recommendations. Uh, that will then bring us to our main discussion today, which is on social consciousness in comics. Now, comic books uh, have been around for a long time. They haven't always been socially conscious. I-, I dare say, if you look back to the earliest books, you probably wouldn't find a lot of social consciousness there, although uh, maybe some kind of sprinkled around the outside. Uh, but certainly... Uh, in the last 40 years, there has been a lot of this, first in the superhero books and now in the more expanded uh, world of comics. And certainly you see some of that playing out in the pop culture um, outlets uh, of, of comics that people are now more familiar with in, in film and television and so forth as well. So let's start just by naming a little bit of the history of some of this socially conscious stuff in comics. I wonder if you guys might, each one of you, just uh, uh, offer an example of, you know, one of the earlier uh, efforts at, um, at bringing some social consciousness into the comic book world. Sure, I- I think early on, comic books were very uh, instrumental in, in sort of raising awareness of, of the rise of fascism, especially kind of drumming up support for the war effort against against the Nazis. The unforgettable um, first Captain America comic, where he's socking uh, Hitler on the jaw. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, it's sort of an iconic comic book image. I, I believe that was before America was um, at war with with Nazi Germany. So early on, um, I mean, it, it was sort of a, a simplistic kind of social consciousness, almost like propaganda. 
but early on comic books have sort of raised awareness of of, of social uh issues and, and uh i think the, the whole kind of background that i'd sort of beautifully uh dramatically portrayed in in uh, michael chabon's novel um the adventures of cavalier and clay if you haven't read that novel it, it's a fascinating look at the early years of of comic books especially um at this issue of um how they address the issue of fascism and nazis in particular one of my um, one of my favorite novels i love that book yeah, it's a fantastic novel, and it won the Pulitzer Prize, I believe. Yeah, I think one of the, um, sort of moving into the 1960s, and I completely agree with Father Matt, I think that, you know, in the early days, you see that surrounding both the Nazis and the Japanese. There's sort of a, a movement there to fight against that fascism. Yeah, I mean, at time, uh, with, with the Japanese, it, it, could, it could be kind of racist. Um, it could, it could, yeah, yeah. The stereotypical <laughs> um, man with the Coke bottle glasses. And, yeah, 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 you know, kind of makes you cringe today. Yeah, yeah. But I think moving into the 1960s, um, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind are the, um, the drug issues of Amazing Spider-Man, which were Amazing Spider-Man 98 and 99, when Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. tackled the issue of drug use, particularly of LSD use, and had Harry Osborne, in an effort to cope with the reality that his father was the Green Goblin, began using drugs. And at the time, there was the Comics Code Authority, in effect, that had to give a stamp of approval to uh, any comic book to make it suitable for public consumption. And Stan Lee and and uh, John Romita Sr. decided to bypass that and publish those issues without the Comics Code Authority there to deal with the issue and to talk about some of the, the dangers and the, that are associated with drug use. And I think we saw that it replayed again with the whole Green Arrow and Speedy storyline um, in which Speedy proves to be a heroin user. So, you know, that's what an example that comes to my mind of, a, of social consciousness in comic books. Was the Green uh, Arrow, Green Lantern uh, comic book, did that come after Spider-Man? Or, or, or do you know which one comes Yeah, first? it came after. That one came in the early, early 1970s. I want to say it was like 71 or 72. And the Spider-Man one, I think, was probably about 70, 71. So they were probably close in time. But what was really uh, new in that book, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow, was how it was dealing with uh, certain other issues, particularly race relations in America, in a, in a really head-on way that hadn't necessarily been done very much in comics before. Green Lantern and Green Arrow go on this drive through America to uh, discover what's really going on in America and end up you know, immersed in kind of the social consciousness of the time. So that book is really saturated with that. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it, uh, it could be at times pretty heavy-handed. Yes. But, yeah. but it, I mean, it, as, as sort of an early attempt to really um, address social issues, it, it, it's still a lot of fun to read. And, and some of its campiness it sort of makes it wildly entertaining today, too, I think. The art in that book the, is Oh, amazing. the artwork by Neil Adams. Adams. Yeah. What was the story with the character um, 
Isaac, who was like this hippie Jesus Christ figure. And, you know, at the end, he like is, uh, he's like, um, in this kind of uh, crucifixion pose suspended between two planes. I mean, it was way over the top. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, but uh, an interesting episode in the history of comic books. And I, I think an important step forward in sort of making comic books more sophisticated. Yeah. I'll just mention, I want to mention one other example, and then we can kind of dig into to this a little bit more. This one actually does go back to the early heydays to the 40s and then gets kind of resurrected again uh, later, uh, Wonder Woman. The creation oh, sure. of Wonder Woman by William Moulton Marston was initially intended uh, towards social consciousness, particularly uh, to a, a, a vision of feminism. Now, it's a little bit of a funny kind of vision. There's some, some books that have come out about this that are really interesting, The Secret Life of Wonder Woman and so forth, that Marston, on the one hand, was very interested in things like women's suffrage and mm -hmm. the sort of power of women and the equality of women. At the other, on the other hand, he was also very interested in BDSM. Uh, and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And so Wonder Woman has this kind of, in the early days, this weird back and forth between being this, like, embodiment of female empowerment uh, and uh, equality between the sexes, and yet at the same time she's, like, always being chained up, and she's <laughs> she yeah. kind of wears this, yeah. you know, glorified swimsuit. And um, <laughs> so there's this kind of, like, back and forth about that. But that ends up, and, and then that kind of goes out of the character after Marston dies. For a long time, Wonder Woman was written in this other, other way because the male writers really didn't know what to do with her, you know, some of which was terrible. I mean, they would have her, like, she was the, the secretary for the Justice Society. And so, you know, <laughs> they would, like, they would have missions, you know, it's time to go save the world. And Wonder Woman would be like, oh, darn, I really would like to go with you guys, but I've got to type up last week's minutes, you know, like stuff like that, which is just um, beyond ridiculous. Um, but, uh, but then there's this kind of reawakening to her in the early 70s when you get the kind of uh, rise of of the women's movement at that time, Wonder Woman's on the cover of the first issue of Ms. Magazine. And there's a lot of interest in her again all of a sudden uh, because some of these women who are at the, you know, like Gloria Steinem and all these people who are at the forefront of that movement grew up with the Wonder Woman of the 40s and, and, and early 50s and, re you know, remember her as this icon of women's strength. And so they start reaching for that. So uh, that becomes a part of her. And also she's, you know, as Marston created her and as she kind of uh, gets back and forth to throughout her various runs over the decades, she's also an icon of peace, right? Like she is um, a strong character, a warrior, somebody who does battle, but... Her ideal, you know, from this Amazon island that she's from is to uh, to create peace and to uh, try to not do harm. And so that becomes like a different sort of 
approach, you know, this is very different from like punching the Nazi in the face, right? Like this is a, this is, she's a strong, you know, don't get me wrong. She can kick butt when she needs to kick butt, but that's not her ideal. And that leads to things like, um, was it in the nineties when she became like, ambassador to the un or something like that (laughs) like you know she does all of these kinds of things that uh that relate to that yeah so um we've got all of this stuff on the table all of these ways in which comics have created these characters that have been socially conscious here's my question are comic books a good venue for doing this kind of thing for raising social consciousness or are there limits to the ability to raise social consciousness in this way i would say that whether it's good or not it's almost endemic to the form nowadays i think when you look at the history of comics especially since the 1960s and particularly in marvel comics because i think marvel's always been the one that's been a little bit stronger on this front there's been an intentional reflection of the culture and the concerns of the culture that get played out through comic books. So I think that, you know, it being human beings who are writing these comics, I think there's a natural inclination for these human beings to want to share or to disseminate their own views on the various social issues of the day. Well, well, com- uh, cartooning, at, at least, has been an important vehicle for uh, political commentary, even before comic books. So cartooning is used to, to create uh, political satire. And this goes back, you know, to the Revolutionary War times in America, even. You see, you see cartoons being used in this sort of revolutionary way. I, I think comics could be uh, a, a powerful form of satire. And some some of these uh, comics that we've been discussing aren't satire; they're more earnest. But um, certainly, uh, in recent times, there's been some uh, well done political satire in comic books. I, I think of uh, Frank Miller and Dave Gibbon. Their work, Martha Washington, "Give Me Liberty," which is sort of a political satire. And whether whether or not you agree with. Frank Miller's politics, and I'm not always sure that I do. <laughs> it's, it's a powerful piece. I, I think comic books have have sort of become more multi-dimensional over the decades. You know, Arch Spielman's Mouse is a powerful literary piece and meditation on the Holocaust and uh, the experience of of the Jewish people. And I, I think it's been recognized by uh, as such. I think it, it, that also was another. And what what a Pulitzer Prize. Um, And so I think comic books have a recognized uh, role in in, in social consciousness. I mean, some some more seriously than than others. As far as the the work in the the 60s go, I think the the X-Men, which we haven't mentioned. Yeah. um, Yeah. I think that did a lot for youth. For young people who, uh, kids who, who were reading comic books to sort of shape their understanding of the civil rights movement. I, I know it, it, it did a, a lot for me <laughs> as far as uh, helping me understand that as, as like a maturing young man. I, you know, I, I related what I saw in the world to what I was reading in my comic books. That's one of the reasons why uh, DC and Marvel Comics thought 
Well, uh, we really need to address, for instance, this drug issue because our, our readers are, are dealing, are asking these questions, and it's important for us to, to be able to look at that in their comic books. So I, I think I think that it really can be an effective uh, medium for for social engagement. I agree with that. Uh, here's here's my thing though, and and you all can tell me whether you think this is crazy or not. You know, obviously, I think any artistic medium can be used uh, and used well to try to influence society in a positive direction. But I worry about when when these things are too on the nose. And what I mean by on the nose is when they're really like it's sort of nakedly pushing a particular political stance or idea or thing that's happening in the culture. Um, so this would be different than something like X-Men. You know, X, what X-Men was doing was very clearly linked to the civil rights movement. And if you look at the context, you can see that, you know, the, the yeah. development yeah. of these people who have mutant powers, but nobody accepts them. And, the, you know, like all that kind of stuff. You can see how that the creation of, of those characters connected and embodied what was happening in that movement. But that idea is so big uh, that it is really, it's very easy to apply that and to walk into it today and still feel the relevance of it. Because there's always that reality of groups of people whom we are um, afraid of or marginalizing or pushing um, you know, in one direction or another that it's you know you don't you don't have to actually you know name it necessarily for what's being done in the story to be able to be flexible enough to be applied in these different circumstances but one of the dangers when you do get really specific and get really connected to one political movement or another is on the one hand you you end up only preaching to the choir right uh, the people who agree with you will buy your book, uh, and the people who don't won't. But on the other hand, you know, if if you're really tied into these things, you don't know what kind of embarrassment you're creating for yourself, right? So we talked before about uh, how some of those early comics portrayed the Japanese during World War II. <laughs> yeah. I doubt that the people who were drawing that and writing that thought to themselves, you know, in uh, uh, 60 or 70 years, people are going to look at this and think, gosh, that's horrible. They were just, well, you know, this was the moment that this was what was happening, and they were they were pushing it forward in that really specific way. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that that's right. Uh, and And... and... Comic books are a sort of different medium than film or, or, or literature. And I think especially early on, these writers and artists, as you say, they, they weren't they were thinking of kind of turning out what was a disposable kind of medium. It was, you know, you'd read it and then toss it into the wastebasket, you know, like a magazine. And so um, I don't think there was the consciousness then that, like, we're creating something that's going to endure. Yeah. I, I think a lot of these uh, artists would be surprised that, you know, 50, 60 years later, people are, are looking at their work um, <laughs> and th still thinking about it. That's, that was the furthest thing from their mind. 
Uh, I mean, even even Stanley and Jack Kirby, they were just churning this stuff out. It was very current, and and so I think as the medium has matured, and there's more of this kind of historical awareness of what creators are doing, that um, the way that they've engaged with social issues has also matured. Um, I see that now. I I don't know about that. I mean, I agree with you that in the in the early days they weren't thinking about legacy because, of course, comic books were not something that anybody was gonna you know care about later. I I agree with that, but I don't. You know, I think this does still happen where you get, and part of the reason why I reached for that that older example is that that's one today with the hindsight of history where we can all go, okay, that was probably a bad idea. Um, if I picked uh, an example that's out there now and, and name-checked it, uh, some of the people who are listening would say, yeah, we don't like that. And some of the people who are listening would go, hey, how dare you? That book is, you know. Sure, right. So I don't, yeah. I don't really want to do that. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I will say I definitely see examples of books that exist you know, within the last uh, 20 years where it, there's been a naked politics to it, sometimes that I agree with, sometimes that I don't agree with, but that that tends to, that tends to turn me off because it doesn't have the same gravity to it that something that's dealing with the human condition does. Now, I understand there's yeah. a need to speak to your time. I really do. And I do think things like, you know, the Spider-Man dealing with drug addiction and stuff like that, you know that was that was that stuff that sort of has to be done um, because that is speaking to the human condition. But I think there's a way to do that that is uh, dealing at a higher level than just taking political uh, pot shots. Um, yeah, and you know, yeah, yeah. And I, I think this is true in other mediums too. So you look yes. at um, songwriters like so Bob Dylan's music in the '60s. Uh, even his protest music still has kind of an enduring relevance. Right, yes. Um, yeah. where, whereas you go, um, someone who is also a very gifted songwriter and whom I love, Phil Oakes, and a lot of it, it, it just doesn't seem as timeless. You guys know, I mean, I, I grew up on hip-hop and, uh, and uh, of course, uh, was a rapper myself <laughs> for a time. So I, but you know, so I, w I was uh, immersed in all of this stuff for a long time. L grew up loving Public Enemy and stuff like that. But you know, some of that has the same thing to it, right? Like there's some of the Public Enemy stuff from the '80s that I love that still has this relevance, even though it's very specific. And then there's other things that have come a little later in their career, like around 2002, they did an album where they had a song on it called "Son of a Bush." Okay, uh, <laughs> which uh, was about then President Bush. If I mean to listen to that song now, just feels weird because it's like it's a, a song protesting against a guy who's not there, and you know what I mean. Like I understand why they did it, but and I actually um, I had the chance to to ask Chuck D about this uh, once. And uh, I mentioned that song, and his, his response was, well, you know, uh, when uh, Ike Turner sings this song about an old car, and that he said the name of the song, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but he says, you Rocket know... Rocket 88, maybe? Maybe. 
he says, uh, you know, we hear that song now and, you know, people don't know what it is, but they still like the song. Uh, and I understand that, but then, like, my thought is, you know, even then, even when he said it to me then, I didn't actually know the song. So I'm not so sure <laughs> that his example <laughs> is so great, right? Like, you know, stuff that's like that tends to just kind of uh, disappear into uh, a moment in time in history. Now, you know, I mean, you can think of counterexamples like the Marvel, um, the thing that Marvel did right after 9-11 is iconic. Do you remember, you know, you guys know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. The oh, sure, com sure. comic yeah. that they put out, which sort of dealt directly with 9-11. How could you yeah. not, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's iconic because it's speaking to a moment that is, that's sort of going to resonate throughout history. I don't know that you know, however you feel about uh, the presidency of George Bush, and I certainly have my own feelings about that, I don't know that anybody is going to be talking about it in 20 or 30 years or more, you know? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think one of the things that you're hitting on, and th this goes back to the Bob Dylan thing in particular, um, being a Bob, big Bob Dylan fan myself as well, one of the things that makes Bob Dylan's early music um, so resonant today is the fact that it often left things open-ended. It spoke to situations, uh -huh. but it didn't proclaim a particular thing. It asked questions, and it left some of those questions open-ended um, so that you can still ponder the things that were being said in those songs today. And in fact, Dylan himself has admitted that some of the things that that seemingly he espoused in those songs had been misinterpreted from even what he was saying. Um, and so I think where, where comic books have done this well is where they've left questions. They've dealt with the issue, but they've left questions. X-Men does that. Yeah. It speaks to that situation of being an outcast, but it doesn't try to proclaim anything. Whereas some of the stuff that you referred to that shall remain nameless um, today that stuff proclaims one particular point of view and doesn't leave the uh, the questions out there. It kind of deals with it. Um, you know, the same thing's true with that Public Enemy song you related. I've been listening to um, Neil Young's Living With War album, which has a song, Let's Impeach the President, on it, uh, <laughs> with George Bush. And that's a very direct statement, right? It doesn't yeah. leave any questions to it. And it doesn't, in ways it hasn't held the test of time because it's yeah. a moment that's passed rather than dealing with some larger questions, which other songs on the album kind of do. But mm. um, Yeah, and I you could you could go in successful. either way with that, right? Like if you had a, you know, let's let's impeach Obama song, it would probably be, you know, people would feel uh passionately one way or the other about it now, and twenty years from now they'd be going, Oh yeah, Obama was president then. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah, if you sure. had, like, a song that was like, let's impeach Calvin Coolidge, you know, right. nobody would care. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so one last question, and then, then we have to wrap this discussion up, which is a shame, because this could go on uh, forever. Um, sure. But um, is there any way you guys can think of in which comics um, and comic books particularly can speak to social issues, social ills, things like that, in a way that is better than other mediums? Hmm. 
Are there any huh. advantages that comics have? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can think of what? one. Comic book characters, and particularly if you're talking about superhero characters, have a kind of ongoing life that means that there is a basic story that we all imbibe. There's a base, basic mythology, you know. We know that Superman came from Krypton, right? Uh, we know that Batman's parents were killed when he was a kid, and that's why he does what he does. So they have the, they have the basic mythology built in. They don't have to rehash that. I know every once in a while they do, but they don't have to. And they're basically, year after year, taking that basic canvas and playing on it. And because of that, um, I think that they can get at some things. They have some latitude to get at some things that other types of stories wouldn't necessarily because you have to begin with, you have to begin from scratch, right? You have to sort of build the character before you even care about the character enough to care about what the social issue is that they're addressing. And even in comic book movies and, and things like that, maybe less so in TV shows, because that's also ongoing, although albeit for a shorter period, not 75 years. Um, but um, even in the movies, I think it's hard to get at this stuff well, because the first comic book hero movie in any series is always the origin story, right? Like, yeah, you have right. to repaint it for your audience, whereas in the comics... Um, there is a certain assumption, even though there's an assumption that every every comic may be somebody's first comic, there is the assumption that you're coming in with some sense that you're coming into the middle of an ongoing story. Uh, and so you don't have to reinvent the character to do it, and there are already stakes. So it makes it a little easier to go with. Yeah, yeah, well, I, 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 can, I can agree with that. Yeah, me too. By the way, folks, as you listen to this, please, if you have your own thoughts about this, we'd love to hear them. You can go to our Facebook page, God and Comics Facebook page. You can talk to us on Twitter. Tell us why we're wrong, friends. We always love hearing that. Um, <laughs> but now it's time for our last segment, This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Batman or Iron Man. This or that. Spider-Man or Superman. This or that. Boxes or briefs, this or that. DVD or VHS, this or that. Dungeons or dragons, this and that. Moses or Elijah, this or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Huh? Today's this or that is provided by Father Matt. So, Father Matt, take it away. Okay, this this one um, is for Father Jonathan. Uh, the Venite or the Jubilate? Ooh. There's some uh, good liturgy there. The Venite or the Jubilate. In case our listeners don't know. So the Venite is a little more traditional. I like them both. I think though I, I would if I had to pick one that I could only do, I'd probably do the Jubilate. It's it's um it's the one that I that I go for more often probably. Okay. Um so this one's for Father Kyle. The freewheeling Bob Dylan or Blonde on Blonde? I would probably say Blonde on Blonde. 
I love the wordplay that Bob Dylan has on that album. I just love, absolutely love his ability to turn a phrase. She smoked my eyes and punched my cigarette. Uh, <laughs> that kind of thing is just amazing to me. And I love the, the, the rhythm in that music and the sort of urgency of that music. Although I love Freewheeling as well. And in fact, I own a, a mono copy, original copy of Freewheel on vinyl. Um, but yeah, yeah. I go with blonde on blonde. Do you think yeah, Bob Dylan both... listens to the show? He might listen. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. Bob, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Bob and Paul Reiser are somewhere right now listening to the show. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, this one is for Father Jonathan. Dr. Doom or Dr. Octopus? I think Doctor Doom is probably the uh, the better evil guy. I uh, to be honest with you, I I, I kind of don't really find either of them to be that interesting. Oh, <laughs> which is part of the reason why I've never been a huge Spider Man fan. Um, there's some things I really I like. I know. I actually do really like the Ultimate Spider Man stuff that Father Kyle was recommending. That that sort of re sparked some of my interest in Spider Man, but. I've never really found the Spider-Man villains to be, they're just a little too hokey for me. Like, what, who's the one that's like, looks like a vulture or something? The vulture. The vulture, yeah, that's... <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's really aptly named. He should be a He-Man villain. Well, um, I mean, see, comic book villains need to be sort of ridiculous. So, I mean, the, only... the, the Flash's villains are even more ridiculous. Oh, well, that's true. I've never... Uh, read a lot of flash either the only uh spider-man villain that i really like is the sandman he's he's oh, a scary really? dude yeah. yeah so this one's for father kyle marcion or pelagius <laughs> <laughs> you asked me to choose between two heretics <laughs> well as um, long as we're talking about arch nemesis yeah. yes the episcopal uh, church welcomes you gosh it... <laughs> Yes, yes. I would probably have to say Marcion only because at least he tried to err on the side of grace rather than uh -huh. erring on the side of works and the law. So, uh, <laughs> so this one's uh, for for Father Jonathan. Yep. Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade? Ah, uh, Sam Spade. Sam Spade from yeah. from the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade are both private detectives uh, who were uh, portrayed by Humphrey Bogart in classic films. The Big Sleep would be uh, Philip Marlowe, The Maltese yeah. Falcon, Sam it's Spade. A, it's a tough choice because I'm uh, a huge Bogart fan and I love uh, both of those films. It's it's hard to beat The Maltese Falcon. The only Bogart film I like better than The Maltese Falcon is Casablanca. Um, oh, the, yeah. the Big Sleep is a is a is a great sort of noir film, uh, but Sam Spade is is a fascinating duplicitous character. <laughs> so, Father Kyle, the Black Cat or Catwoman? I would probably say the Catwoman. I think the Catwoman is a very complex and interesting character. Although I like the Black Cat a lot, that's a really tough call. Isn't the Black Cat basically a knockoff of Catwoman? She is. She is. I mean, she has, although she got them from the Kingpin, she has uh, 
bad luck powers and the Catwoman's <laughs> all human, as it were, with no powers. They've kind of grown in the same direction. But Marv Wolfman maintains that he, he was not um, thinking of the Catwoman when he created the Black Cat. <laughs> I find <laughs> that hard to believe. That. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so th- this is the final one. This is for Father Jonathan. The Wizard of Oz or the Chronicles of Narnia? The Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. From a Christian standpoint, of course, Chronicles of Narnia is fantastic. I I love the Wizard of Oz storylines, though. I think um, I think the, the Wizard of Oz story itself, but then the greater Oz stories are also fantastic. Yeah, the, I mean, the novels keep on going. Uh, um, and a lot of people don't realize that who've just seen the, the movie. Um, right. And, and and it, it, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating series of books, uh, yeah. but but the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, C.S. Lewis is just a, a hero of mine, as he, as I'm sure he's a hero of you as well. Yeah. As well. Yeah. well, all that all that prison violence. I mean, that's just a little bit too much to take. Odds? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it gets a little dark there. Right. <laughs> And then plus, then you've got the guy who takes the Oz and, and becomes some kind of goblin Australian. So it's, you know, the whole thing is just That's kinda, right. kind of messed up. Yeah. Yeah, it gets awfully convoluted. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he just gives bad medical advice, too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and before before you know it, he's riding on the midnight train and the whole thing Careful is... Now. Dr. Oz might be listening to our show, and we're going to end up on his hit list. <laughs> well, I know Dr. Oz's pastor. Do you really? I do, yeah. he's uh, um, he, um, Dr. Oz is a member of the New Church, which is a, um, a, a, a sect based on the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg. And I happen to know the, the pastor of the congregation he belongs to. <laughs> That's going to be it for us as well on this episode of God and Comics. We hope you will join us again next time. In the meantime, please feel free to check out our pages on Facebook and Twitter, uh, or you can take a look for us at godandcomics.com and send us a letter. We love hearing from you. We're really enjoying getting messages from you guys. Father Paul Wheatley does the theme music that you are hopefully banging your head to right this minute. Until next time, I am Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Strummer. And we'll see you. Excelsior! <laughs> <laughs>